In preacher school, they tell you uh, three things. They tell you, uh, if you're going to make an illustration, uh, make your wife look good, make your kids look okay, and you can make yourself the butt of jokes. And so for uh, 25 years or so, I've tried to adhere uh, by that. Make my wife look awesome, make my kids look okay, and if I'm going to make fun of anybody, I'll make fun of me. And so I say all that to say, today I'm going to go for like B. I'm going to make one of my sons look okay, all right, because here's... here's uh, Here's, the, here's what came to mind. When you go back to, I think it was ninth grade, when he was in ninth grade in Houston, Texas, uh, let me say this. We, we come from a decently athletic background, but nobody in my family, as far as I could tell, had never done track, all right? I can't tell you there's when a shot put or a javelin, any of that. There's no background at all in that. And so we're there in Houston, and I think Tyler is, in, I think he's in the ninth grade at this point, and uh, his football coach was also the track coach, and I'm not sure, but he, all of a sudden he's like, hey, I need you to run the 800 meter, all right? The 800 meter is the race from hell, just so you know it. It's two, two around that track. I mean, and you, it's not like a jog, like a long one, and it's not a sprint. It's kind of somewhere in between. But so I was like, hey, I'm going to go to my first track meet. So I'm there, and I'm trying to root him on. And But again, I don't know much about it, but the, the, the gun goes off, and there's, I don't know, eight or nine guys that are there from all over Houston, and boom, they're off. And my son, my son is like, boom, he's off like a rocket, man. And he is immediately in first place. I'm like, awesome, awesome, awesome. And he is actually stretching the lead out. I mean, they go around the first turn and he is just, he is just, he is sprinting with all he's got. He goes around the back stretch. I'm in there. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I don't know whose jeans you got, but yeah, way to go. Way to go. He's on round three quarters of it. And he is still, it is lengthening. It's now five yards, six yards, seven yards. It is almost a 10 yard lead by the time he comes around the first time. And then everything goes literally into slow motion, okay? You got to go around it twice, all right? So he's got like a 10-yard lead in front of all, because all these other guys, I can tell, they're very experienced. They got that track look, that, you know, that hole, that whole gate. And my son's out there busting it and sprinting and going like this. And he goes around that first time. And it, man, I can tell his legs, it's like immediately they start to turn to jello. You see that lactic acid build up. And he goes from a sprint to a semi-sprint, from a semi-sprint to a jog, to a jog. It's like... Jesus, help me out of this track. And all of a sudden, that 10-yard gap is a no-yard gap, and one guy passes him. He's around the, he's around the other side. He's, he's three-quarters of the way through. Another guy passes him. All right, he's, he's almost done. Another guy passes him. I mean, he gutted up a little bit. He made it in the third place. And, but at the, the whole idea was the coach like, what are you doing? What are you doing? All right, he started off phenomenal. Started off phenomenal. But what happened is, slowly, slowly, he began to struggle. Slowly, he began to slow. Slowly, what happened is the people around him began to catch up to him. All that to say this, for four weeks now, we've been in a series and got another four weeks to go. For four weeks, we've been looking at a church some 2,000 years ago, but it reads like it's right out of today's paper. 2,000 years ago in what is now Turkey, there was a church, a a pretty young church that was going awesome in a city called Colossae. But what happened is the culture started to make inroads to this church that was off to a great start and they started to struggle and they started to slow. Started off great. The gospel went out from them. People were being saved, but slowly the culture began to slow their witness down. And the way it happened was they lived in a very spiritual city. 
a very spiritual city, a lot because of the Roman road system. The world kind of became flat for a while. It's kind of like our internet, their road system allowed all these different cultures to come in there. And all of a sudden, what was exclusive and what their the understanding of the gospel was pure, all of a sudden the culture started to dilute that. Colossae was like Baskin and Robbins. It was like 31 different flavors of whatever God you want, all right? You want a God of fertility? That's great. You want a God of prosperity? That's awesome. You want a God? It's there on every corner. And so what happened with the church was the church started to have what was called, what is typically called syncretism. Syncretism means all these different worldviews start to collide together. And instead of holding on to the purity of what you understand, it begins to be watered down. And so the Colossians would look over here at, let's say, whatever, a Druid neighbor and go, hey, I like the way that the peace that that Druid neighbor has, or I like the way this pagan guy, the way that he has his family structured. I'm going to borrow some of that. And for four weeks, for a whole chapter, What Paul is trying to say is, listen, don't try to fit Jesus into some kind of system that you're trying to put together. Jesus is the system. He is the system. And so what you see is you see all these words and all these superlatives like all, all. That's why he uses that all over the place in the first chapter. In chapter one, he says, all things were created for him. All things were created through him. It says he exists before all things. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And he does so that he should be preeminent, which is where we get the exalted overall byline for the series. And I'm gonna give you a, I'm gonna give you a warning and both a warning and also kind of a little prophecy here for a second, okay? The warning is we gotta go through four or five verses of some deep cultural stuff that I'm just gonna make a handful of comments on, but to get the context of where we're going and where we're going is verse 13, 14, and 15. That's where we're going. We're going to chapter two, 13, 14, and 15, but to get there, we gotta hit like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10 and get, get up to that. But I'm gonna warn you on the front end, it's kinda, it's kinda, has a lot of cultural stuff in there. I'll try to make one or two comments, but where I'm telling you is where we're going. Where we're going is verse 13, 14, and 15. If you have a Bible, you need to underline 13, 14, and 15. If you highlight, highlight these. If you've got a phone, bracket, whatever you can do, 13, 14, and 15 are some of the most substantial, most important verses in the whole Bible. But to get there, let's take about five or 10 minutes to uh, kind of make our way from verse six on. Verses one to five is, a, is kind of Paul praying some of the same things we went over in chapter one, and then he gets to verse six. Let me read you verse six and seven and make a couple of comments. He says, therefore, now therefore is one of those words that connects what he's just said with what he's about to say. So it's important to understand, okay, that word there, he's starting to say what I just said, based on what I just said, here's what's going to happen. And here's what he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So let me just make a couple of comments right off the bat. Have you received Jesus as Lord? That's what he says. He's talking to Christians. And again, I've been around church life long enough to know that not everybody in church is a Christian. I know that not everybody who's religious actually is a Christ follower. I also know the fact that I can't in my own flesh be able to bring that out and bring up the sheet for you to see that I'm not a Christian. So God's going to have to do that. But I can ask the question, have you received Jesus Christ as Lord? What he says is, have you received him? As you received him by grace, so walk in him. It's a relationship, and we'll come back to that. Verse seven, he says, rooted, and some of you English teachers are gonna kind of freak out a little bit here because he uses like all these layered different kinds of images here. He uses agricultural, rooted. He uses architectural and built up in him as established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in 
Thanksgiving. So let me give you a couple of things about these and we'll go to the next few verses. All right. Therefore looks back about what he's been saying. And what he's been saying is, listen, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is God. Sometime when you are uh, around Easter or Christmas, you have all these programs coming on. It's like the Bible never claims Jesus is God. He is, Colossians is like the cannonball for that whole argument. He looks back to what he has been telling them, that Jesus is first. He's the creator God, that Jesus went first. He's the one that pursued you. If you're a Christ follower, it wasn't because you were some awesome guy and you'd be an awesome draft choice for his team. He did so because you love him. Why? Because he first loved you. In chapter one, verse 20, it says the way that happened is he made peace through the blood of his cross. And so the challenge is going to be that he would be preeminent in everything for you and I to put Jesus first. Not one of my priorities, not one of the things I try to make sure is important, but it is ultimate. And so in chapter three and four, he's going to start talking about stuff like your money. Stuff like your marriage, stuff like your work, stuff like your family, stuff like your kids. He's going to start doing that. But right now, he's setting up kind of the theological framework to be able to put him first. All right, so here's, uh, here's going to go. I'm just going to jump to, I'm going to, jump to uh, jump to verse 8, if you will. He says, see to it that no one, and by the way, listen to what, he's going to name some stuff that are rivals that you're like, that's not the biggest thing that enslaves me. Some of you might say, well, this sin kind of has me held captive or this person kind of has me held captive. But just understand, he's going to list four of them. I'm just going to briefly mention that are, and we're going to elaborate some in the weeks ahead. But just understand, these are rivals to the gospel. See to it that no one takes you captive by, here's the first one, philosophy. Now, not all philosophy is bad. Paul's not even anti-philosophy. He's actually making a little jab at some people that are in the church there. And empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. All right, so kind of leave, leave, that, uh, leave that verse 8 up there. Let me kind of take them one at a time. First one is this What are some things that are rivals of the gospel? Uh, philosophy. Now, listen, the Bible is not anti philosophy. A lot of people are like, well, God's against philosophy. It says so right here. Some of the best philosophers have been Christ followers. You look down there and People like Pascal and Thomas Aquinas and Augustine and even C.S. Lewis, those are people that tried to take philosophy and put a biblical framework to it. All, right? All philosophy literally means is the pursuit of wisdom, and it can be very helpful. Some of the books of the Bible are known as wisdom literature, like Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, and some people even put the book of James in there. And so how do I, how do I pursue wisdom is a very good thing. What he's saying here is, he's saying some of the Colossian people were saying, listen, uh, I'm chasing after saying, I know best. How do we do this? We do this when I'm 26 years old and say, I know better than God about sex. It's when I'm 36 years old and say, I know better than God about, about relationships. It's when you're 46 years old and you say, I know better than God about uh, uh, money. That's what happens when it says, that's a philosophy that says, you know what, I'm smarter than God. And then he says, empty deceit. He goes from philosophy to empty deceit. Now, we've hit this repeatedly through the years as pastor and people, but empty means vain or meaningless. Deceit means misled or foolish. Now, loved ones, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about the stuff that is in that culture that wasn't necessarily wrong. It's just the fact that it overpromises what it can deliver. As I told you earlier, in that city, they had all these different temples, and we kind of thumb our noses like we're intellectually much stronger than those people two and 3,000 years ago. It's like, how could they have a temple and worship a god of, and they had all these different gods. They had a god of fertility. They had a god of prosperity. 
They even had a God of the sewer, which I have no idea what exactly they were trying to get across there. They had a God of health. They had all these different gods. And you're like, how silly of them. But they would worship there. And one of the things that we've talked about repeatedly is an idol is not simply a temple that you go to. It's a good thing that you have made an ultimate thing that eventually becomes a destructive thing because it is not able to bear up under the weight. It can't deliver the promise. So what does that look like? It looks like when we drive around the cul-de-sac of stupidity thinking that this will finally, ultimately satisfy me. If I can just get those granite countertops, then I will be satisfied. If I can just get this boy to like me, then I will be satisfied. And what happens, and the reason we call it stupid is the fact that we go around it and it doesn't satisfy and we think, okay, all I need is another boyfriend or other countertops. They're not bad, they just overpromise. And so he says, that's empty, that's deceitful. Don't fall for that anymore. Third one he says is human tradition. And we're gonna deal with this almost a little bit next week, but it's man's attempt to appease God. It's called religion, all right? And what he's really reflecting on is there were some legalists here. There were some Judaizers. There were some people that wanted to kind of have a little bit of Old Testament and a little bit of New Testament and mix them together. And they, like, for example, they had 600 plus laws that they added to the Old Testament commands. All right. Anybody in here doing really good on the, and <laughs> anybody tired of trying to follow the ones that are already written down? Anybody's like, man, I need some new ones. I'm already, I'm like batting a thousand on these. I failed these, so I don't need 613 more to try to follow. And so that's what they were doing. Let's kind of add some stuff. The way it sounds today, and I've heard this a hundred times, here's the way it sounds today, which makes no sense at all. And again, we'll unpack this more even next week. But when people talk about religion and I got to get my stuff together, here's the way I hear it all over. And again, I'm not high siding today. It feels like I am on the South, but here's the way I hear it in the South more than any place. It's the person who thinks they have to get their act together to come to the Lord. I just got to get my act together before I come to your church. You know, I got to stop this or stop this before I come to your church. I got to do this before I become a follower of Jesus. And I just jotted down the person who thinks they have to get their act together to come to the Lord is like the person who thinks they have to stop bleeding before they go to the ER. It's like, I just got to stop bleeding before they go to the ER. No, no, you go to the ER to help them stop the bleeding. You come to Jesus. Why? I'm coming to Jesus. Let him change you. And then the fourth thing would be this. Fourth thing he simply says is elemental spirits. Now, loved ones, we are children or grandchildren of what's called the enlightenment in history. The enlightenment is that period of time where it was very anti-spiritual and it's all about, if I can't put in a test tube, it's not gonna work. So let me kind of be clear on this. We are grandchildren of the enlightenment. So we tend to be very linear, very mathematical, very analytical. And so when the, you look at something like, what is he talking about elemental spirits? What in the world are you telling me that you believe in like a literal devil? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I actually do. Now, I don't believe in a literal devil that's got like a stupid pitchfork and a red suit and horns on his head and some crazy tail. I don't believe in that. But the Bible didn't even teach that. What the Bible clearly teaches, just like it teaches all the other things, the Bible clearly teaches an unseen world that impacts your seen world. If you don't think that you have an enemy that tries to uh, mess up your marriage, at some point, some place in your theology, you've got to understand, you've got to make some room for spiritual warfare. Now, this is not, this is not the sermon on that, but if you have nothing to say, if, if I don't see it, if you're not ever, 
Have you not ever seen something going on in your family or some, something going on? You're like, man, there's got to be something more that is jacking that thing up. It can't just be that this was your uncle or this was your whatever. Haven't you ever seen that? So uh, for those of you that are always like, you never say anything good about cats. Here's, here's the one time ever that I will ever say anything good. Here's what the Bible says about your enemy. It says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I guess that's not really saying anything good about the lion, but I would say I have respect for the lion, okay? I have respect for the lion. If I'm in my house and I'm surfing the channels, I come to National Geographic and they've got those African cat predators. I'm stopping the channel, man. I love watching that leopard pull that caiman out of the river. I'm like, that is bad right there. That is a bad cat that can pull an alligator out of the river and eat it. I mean, that's props to that, props to that cat. I, I love watching the lions get the wildebeest. You're like, man, you're a messed up guy. I like watching the lions get the wildebeest, man. That's why God put them there, so he could just eat the wildebeest. That's why they're there. It's impressive when they take that down. But you know, I've noticed as you go on, rare do they take down some big, grown wildebeest or Cape Buffalo. You know what they do? How does the lion typically take down? Who does the lion typically take down? The weak. Not just the weak, but the isolated too. Is that not true? You get a little baby calf, looks so cute. A little baby calf gets away from mama, gets away from the herd. It's going, and you can almost feel the music changing. It's like the music changes. It's like somebody about to get eaten right here. Somebody's about to get eaten. Why? Because the little calf is away from the herd. And sure enough, unless that, some, unless that cat somehow makes it back to the herd, going down, getting eaten. And as I thought about that, it's like that is exactly the way I see. That's exactly what happens to you. That's exactly the way it happens to Christians. Some of you are not connected in any local church, despite the fact the Bible says that the local church is the greenhouse in which you flourish in your Christian life as a disciple. You see all those U's in here, Y-O-U's, Y-O-U, Y-O-U. It's all over this. All of those are plural. They're all plural. You know why they're plural? Because he's writing a church. He's writing a local church. And so a local church with all its imperfections, with all its mess up, with all its failures is still God's plan A. And so when you're thinking, you know, I just like to come hear the music or I just like to come hear the sermon. I don't really want to get involved. That is disobedience, loved ones. And you are putting yourself at peril. One of the things God wants you to do is get connected to a local church. If this isn't the place for you, find some place that's going to actually teach you the Bible and challenge you. The way we do it here, connect groups. You're like, I, I, just feel, I just feel too weak. I got too much junk to go into a connect. A connect group is the safe spot for you that are injured. You're like, well, I'm too strong. I don't need to be in some connect group. I got my stuff together, so I guess that's not for me. Wrong, wrong. If you're strong, you're the one that's supposed to be part of the herd, helping the weak get strong, helping the wounded to get healed. You're like, well, I don't think that. Then you're not strong. You're not. If you're like, I don't want that, then you're a consumer. You're a baby. You might know all the stuff from Leviticus, but if your whole thing is, what is it for me? You're an infant. You are still sucking on the bottle like a two-year-old. That's not even in my notes, but I'm just saying that is true. That is true. So don't say I don't need it. Everybody needs it, including me. You know, okay, can I just say this? 
You know what? You know why I have a connect group? I don't sit there. Rare is the time that I'm in the connect group and I learn some Bible knowledge that I didn't know. I'm not saying that because I know everything. I'm just saying that's not the reason. The reason is just like you, I need some community. I need some people that are praying for me. I need some people that know me. I need some people that have been in my home that say, hey, how can I pray? I need that just like you do. And so uh, you're like, what does that have to do with uh, this? Well, let me, let's get to our verses because this is like, uh, this is context for the verse. I don't, want, I, don't want, I don't want to run out of time. Verse nine, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay, that's the incarnation, verse 10. And you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. I mean, is it, is it not obvious? He's like, listen, Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. Here it is. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11. Okay. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, okay, let me, uh, I'd rather just go on right past this, but some of you are like, why didn't you stop at that verse? Um, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the visible sign of covenant relationship with God uh, was the visible, visible physical act of circumcision. And I'm, you're like, what is that? Uh, Google it. Okay, I'm not going to explain it. I'm just saying that's, that's what, that was the visible thing. And what he's saying in this verse is the same way that that was a visible covenant relationship sign in the Old Testament in the same way in the New, that was external, okay? He's saying in the New Testament, there's a circumcision made without hands. That's an internal thing that God has in sense spiritually ripped open your flesh and given you a new heart and new purpose and a new beginning and all of that. Actually, the New Testament physical sign is called baptism, right? All right, some of the men in here are like, man, I'm so glad it changed, all right? I will just say this, okay, have you been baptized? Just a quick question, have you been baptized as a profession of your faith? Here's what he says about that. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, are you ready for these next three verses? All right, are you ready? I mean, you gotta, you gotta get these next three verses. You got some of you are like, this is the reason that God woke your hind end up this morning is to get to church to hear these next three verses, Okay. Okay, go ahead. some of you are not ready. Look to your person next to you and go, are you ready? Just ask them. Say, are you ready? You ready for these? Okay, if they, won't, if they won't look to you, they ain't ready, but you're ready. Okay, here's verse 13. Verse 13, you gotta get it. And you, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, what's that word say? All of our trespasses. Now just stop there for a second before we go to the next one. Then we're going to circle back and press in on it. Here's what it is. Did you see it said you were dead in your trespasses and sin? So for some of you, you grew up in church and the message that you heard, I'm not saying that the guy didn't say it correctly. It could be just if you were still blinded, what you hear in church is basically behaviorism, moralism. And it's basically this. God is good. You are bad. Try harder. God is good. You stink try harder. And so what do you do? You try harder, try harder. I'm going to be a better person. I'm not going to raise my voice to my wife. I'm going to put five bucks in the plate. I'm going to serve out there. I'm going to be an usher, whatever. But after a while, that is exhausting. And plus it's not the gospel. The gospel is not God is good. You are bad and try harder. That's not the gospel. 
The gospel is not, okay, God's going to make good people better or bad people good. What that text is saying is the gospel is he makes dead people alive. That's the gospel. He makes people who are dead, makes them alive. That's the gospel. And so here's where you got to go. Let's go to verse 14. How did he, how did he do that? By canceling the record of death. This is so good. I mean, this is so good. I was like reading this stuff this week about this is what this is. Now it gets kind of cumbersome in here, but listen to what he's saying. He says, by canceling, okay, I'm gonna get this, I gotta get a little piece of paper out here for, okay. okay here's, you, gotta, you, gotta think, you gotta think paper, okay. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside nailing it to the cross. You're like, what is he talking about all these legal demands? Here's what would happen. He's drawing from the Roman law system. And in the Roman law system, which is where Colossae was a part of, here's what would happen is if you were a criminal or you were charged with different things, they would actually come into the courtroom. They would come into the courtroom and on this piece of paper, the guy would call out all the charges against you. This is what she did. This is what he did. This is what he did. And it would all be written down there so that when the sentence came down later on, when the judge says guilty, here's the penalty, everybody would know, well, all this stuff was about him. All this stuff was about him. Now, let's just do a little exercise for a second. Don't tell anybody. Don't broadcast it for a second. But here's what, just when we've all done some stuff, correct? And we've all done some stuff. We've done some stuff last year, last decade, last night. We've all done some stuff. And that's the record of debt he's talking about. So imagine this for just a second. Imagine writing down every single thing that you have ever done. Everything you've ever done. Stuff that you didn't do that you should have done. You should have helped here. You should have fought against injustice. You should have helped this person every bad motive that you had, every bad word that you thought, every bad thought that you thought, every bad thing that you said, every bad action that you took. Think about every single one of those for every single day, for every single year that you have always, that you've, that you've lived. Think about every one of them. Okay. And then all of a sudden you get not in front of some judge like you, but you get put in front of the God of the universe, the thrice holy God of Israel. You get put in front of his and they come out and say, this is Bruce and this is a thick record that he's got. We don't have time to go over all this stuff on his record. And then amazingly, amazingly, what God does is God takes this record and he goes up to the cross and he just boom, boom, boom. And it says he nails it to the cross. And there's a great little word in there. It says he cancels the debt. Look at that little phrase in there. You see where it says cancels? That word means rubs out. It means washed away. It means all that sin, all that junk, all those words, all that stuff, all of them. I mean, all is a big word. It's actually not a big word. It's actually a small word. It's a pretty simple word. It's three letters, easy to pronounce, easy to understand. And he says, all of your transgressions, all of your sin, all of your failure, all of your disappointments, all of those things, he said, those have been wiped. He's like, what? I don't see them. Why? Because he says they've been rubbed away. They've been washed away by the blood of Jesus. That's what it is. The gospel is not that you get your act together. The gospel is that God took your record of sin and then washed it away by the blood of Jesus. That is the gospel. You're like, what about my future stuff? Some of you are like, I, I know, I know, I know, I know my past has been taken care of, but I still do some stuff. 
I still have some stuff. And what about the future stuff? Here's just a simple question. Okay. How many of your sins, when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, when Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How many of your sins, how many of your sins were still future? All of them. <laughs> they were all, nobody, last week we had a 95-year-old dad get a grill set because he was the oldest person. Ain't nobody 2,000 years old. So all of your sins were future back when Jesus died on the cross. You had committed none of them yet, and he paid for all those things in advance. Here's what you got to understand. You've got to understand the distinction. Because in cultural Christianity, it's very easy and flippant to say, Jesus died for me, Jesus died for me, Jesus died for me, Jesus died for my sins. We can say that, and it just rolls off the tongue. Distinguish between Jesus died for me and put in its place, Jesus died instead of me. Instead of Jesus died for me, think Jesus didn't just die for you, Jesus died instead of you. That's why the people over here being baptized on their shirt, it says, Jesus in my place. And you can look throughout the Bible and you can see what's called a substitutionary atonement. I'll give you four or five real quick. 2 Corinthians 5 says he took your wickedness and then in its place he gave you his perfection. Hebrews chapter 12, it says he was clothed with shame. So what? You and I could sit in a seat of honor. Matthew 27 says the father turned his face away from Jesus so that he could then turn his face toward you as his adopted son or daughter. Isaiah 53 says he was struck down so you could be lifted up. Romans says he lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, and he took our condemnation and he gave us eternal life. Colossians says he took our guilt, he took our guilt and he rubbed out with the cross, he rubbed out all of your transgressions. And so that's why verse 15 is sort of like the coup de gras, and it's like he disarmed the rulers and authorities. In other words, don't look at the cross and feel pity. It's like, oh, Jesus died. How sad is that? How sad is that? Jesus went there willingly. He went there willingly. He says, no one, no one takes my life up unless I give it up. Nobody does that. And this is the picture. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He's drawing from that culture, the Roman culture, when they would go and they would defeat an enemy, they would sometime, and it's kind of gory, they would actually bring back people that they had in captivity. They would strip all their decoration down, strip all their stuff down, and parade them in their shame down the street to say, look, we won, we won, we won, we won. And so he's saying that's what Jesus did. And he put them to open shame, how? By triumphing over them in him, in Jesus, by the cross. And so here's what I wanna kind of drive home today. Uh, by far, by far, the number one, the number one weapon, the number one weapon, no doubt, I've been doing this thing 30 years, the number one weapon that either keeps people from Jesus or keeps Christians defeated with Jesus is condemnation. Old philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, who was anything but a Christian, he said it this way. He said, I just have this sense of guilt. He said, 
It would be powerful if I was looking through the keyhole of somebody else's life and could see everything about them. I would have such power over them. He said, but then I realized that God is looking through a keyhole and he sees everything in my life. And again, he, he was a creepy guy, number one. He wasn't a Christian, number two, but he was nailing what you see in the Bible. He's nailing what Adam and Eve felt. In Genesis chapter three, remember when they had sinned? I mean, they've been frolicking around naked and no shame, no shame, no shame. They sin, and then it says what? And it says they were ashamed in front of God. And so what did God do? In God's mercy and his grace, he killed an animal and he covered them up. That was a picture of what he would do way, 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 many, many years later when he would kill the sacrificial lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then cover your sin and cover my sin. And so I looked up what condemnation means, what condemnation stands for. Three definitions. One definition is this. It is an express, complete, it's to express complete disapproval of. That's where some of you are today. You honestly are there. When you think about God, you're like, God tolerates me, barely. He's got kind of a low-grade fever. When he thinks about me, he's like, man, that guy, I wish you would get his act together. So total disapproval. I don't like him. Certainly, maybe love him, don't even like him. Second definition of condemnation, if you could just Google that, is this. It is a sentence to death. Condemnation, a sentence to death. What you gotta understand, and I'll use this word next week, I'm pretty sure. It's a big word, it's a word that's not used very often. It's the word propitiation. Propitiation, just think satisfaction. Everything Jesus did on the cross satisfied the justice of Almighty God for the sin of mankind. Understand that. Anything you could have done, that big list right there, when Jesus said, it is finished, that's what he meant. He meant, it is finished, it is finished. And you're like, you don't know my, you don't know my addiction. You don't know my affair. You don't know my abortion. The last church I was at said, you're not welcome to ever come back here because you broke up with your, you're not at, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not get your act together, then you come back to Jesus. That's not, is repentance real? Absolutely repentance is real. But what the gospel is, is he took your record of debt and he nailed it to the cross and he says, it is finished, it is finished. And loved ones, what you gotta understand is if you've never actually received Jesus, then amazingly, God can even use this sense of condemnation. God can even use, because there's a grain of truth in that. There's a grain of truth in that condemnation, that separation. So again, what Adam and Eve felt, they felt that soul separation where it's like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think God's mad at me. And you know what? If you don't have Christ in your life, then guess what? Then you are gonna pay for your own sin. Listen to what, we all know John 3, 16. Uh, some of you know John 3, 17, like two of you know John uh, 3, 18, but let me read it for us. John 3, 16, we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. See, what you got to understand is that sense of condemnation, that sense of even shame or guilt. He is not trying to beat you to death with the condemnation. Please hear me on this. He's not trying to beat you to death with that sense of condemnation. He's trying to raise you to life by pointing you to the cross of Jesus. Jesus. 
And that's why Jesus says this. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden or heavy burdened, some of your translations say. Come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my load is light. And so you're here today, you're here this morning and you're like, man, it's just that sense of condemnation and guilt and God is that. Do you understand that is a choice? God allows you a gift today. You can simply go, man, this is so heavy. And what he's trying to do, he's trying to pull you to Jesus. And what you can do is like, you know what? That's too heavy. What am I having that for? I don't need that anymore. I'm going to go to the person who says, guess what? My load is easy and the burden is light. Now we got about five or six more minutes, but Right now, you don't have to wait till the end of the message and we're going to go through a song. Right now, if you don't know Christ, your eyes can be open. Your eyes can be open. But if you're like, you know what, I've got this sense of condemnation. I don't think I've ever received Christ. And right now, with your eyes open, just pray back to God. Dear God, dear God, I am turning from my sin and embracing Jesus right now. As I sit in church with my eyes open and my head straight ahead, come and be my Savior. Take away the condemnation. That's a great offer but you're like, I've done that and I still feel it. And I understand what you mean. Because one of the most amazing, most disheartening, most discouraging, most uh, defeating things that Christians do is after getting out of the yoke of condemnation because of what Christ has done, we somehow, and it's usually because you've had patterns of thinking, we've had patterns of thinking. If you came to Christ late like I did, we have patterns of thinking that are there. And you know, the Bible says, I give you a new heart. I give you a new life. But the Bible does not say I give you a new mind. He says you've got to renew your mind. And so what we tend to do is even though condemnation has been taken away from us, what do we do? We put it right back on and we do, we have all these, you got things like uh, some of you who are the, the whole performance deal, the whole performance burden. I've actually heard some of you say, is God trying to pay me back for you know, skipping a quiet time or dropping out of, you know, Christ, God trying to pay, God didn't pay you back. If God's bringing any discipline, it's to bring you back, not to pay you back. Some of you do the pretend deal. You know, it's not going well. You know, you're walking around in defeat. You know, you cannot beat in that habit. And so you walk around pretending. I mean, here in the South, what do we do? How you doing, brother? Well, bless your heart. That's, that's Christian cussing. I mean, it's like, I don't like, bless her heart. Bless her heart. You know, that's, 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 that's the way. But what are we saying? It's pretending. It's pretending. It's like I'm so weighed down by this. Here's what some of you got to figure out how to do. You've got to figure out at some point, because see, here's the deal. Some of you got something that is you've been defeated by for so long. And it's not that you hadn't tried. You've tried. You've made New Year's resolutions. You've made vows. You might have even got accountability. But you got something, he's like, I, you never could break free from that. And what happens if you try hard enough and don't get any victory, you eventually stop trying and you just live a life of defeat, even as a Christian. And one of the things that's the biggest key you've got to understand is the cross and the gospel is not just to break the penalty of sin. It's to break the power of sin. You're like, how did that happen? Let me give you one quick Bible story and then we're just, then we're, then we're going to close up. This is actually repeated. It's a model repeated from the lady who broke the, she broke the aroma over Jesus. So you see him doing this all, all the time. But remember the, remember the story in John 8? Remember in John, John 8 is the story. John 8's the story of the woman who's caught in adultery. She's caught in adultery. 
So I've been reading that story all week long just to kind of try to live in that deal. Do you know that actually the idea, the phrase is she was caught in adultery, meaning that these religious leaders figured out a way where she was in the act of adultery. They break in and they drag her out and they bring her to church. Can you imagine? you imagine somebody pops in the back door, bringing some half-clothed woman, throwing her up here and saying, what are you going to say? You remember what they say? They bring her in front of Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, the law says that a woman caught in adultery, we don't know where the man is. Why wasn't the man dragged up here? But either way, they dragged the woman up there. They say to this to test him, they said, our law says a woman like this caught in adultery ought to be stoned. What do you say? And that's when he kind of goes down and he draws something on the ground. We don't know what he drew on the ground. But then the text said that the old, starting with the oldest, they dropped the rocks that they were going to stone her with. They dropped the rocks and then they left one at a time. And in an amazing little scene right toward the end, it says this. It says, then the only two people left were Jesus and the woman. It says, the woman was left alone there with Jesus. Can you imagine that scene? Here's a woman filled with shame. We don't know why she was in that relationship. Did she have a bad dad? Did she get abused growing up? We don't know why. But she's there, right there with Jesus, just her and Jesus. And remember what he says? He says, where are the people that have condemned you? Where are the people? Like, they're gone, they're gone, they're gone. And here's the phrase that he says you've got to get. You've got to get this order, loved ones. If you don't get the order, you're going to continue in defeat because it's the difference between victory and defeat. So here's what he says. He looks at her and he says this phrase. He says, neither do I condemn you, comma, go and sin no more. Now understand what happened. The grace was given first. I don't condemn you. Now, in the power and in the identity and in the freedom of the grace you've received, then now you go and sin no more. First came the gospel, first came grace, then came the change. Now, most religious people would have said it the other way. Most religions say it the other way. They would say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. Jesus flips it and says, I don't condemn you, then go and sin no more. So here's, uh, I jotted down a few thoughts. Jesus knew she would never have the ability to break free of the sin that had led, the, the adultery, until she felt the embrace of a God who is better than what she had sought in the sin, in the adultery. If Jesus had just said, hey, cut that out, cut that out, never would have worked because she wasn't seeing something. She wasn't seeing someone more beautiful, more fulfilling, more satisfying than what she was trying to go for. And the reason some of you can't break that whole habit, now there's some things you gotta do, that's chapter three. But right now, one of the reasons is you're like, you don't understand that if you just say, I'm gonna stop that, I'm gonna stop that, the attracting power of sin is way too strong. But at some point, when you see that the gospel is better, he says, what your soul is craving for is not found in that. When he says, go and sin no more after, neither do I continue condemn you. She's looking at it. She's like, you know what? I'm seeing in someone better, better than the romance, better than the closeness, better than the intimacy, better than the relationship, better than the companionship. I'm seeing something far better than I found trying it somewhere else. The gospel message is not stop sinning. That would be impossible. The gospel message is behold the grace and the love of almighty God as Jesus died on the cross. That is the gospel message. So here's what I got to tell you. And how, what is verse six? We'll go all the way back to the beginning. Verse six says, as you receive Jesus, so walk in him. So Christian, here's what I'm asking you. 
How did you receive Jesus? You received him by grace through the gospel, correct? He says, as you received him, so walk in him. So if I received him by grace, if I see, received him humbly, which you understand, you, if you're a Christian, you were humbled at some point. Nobody walks with a bunch of swag up to the cross and go, you know, man, it's about time you recognize me. You don't see any of that at all. Okay, what you do at the cross is you see my sin is great, my Savior is greater. You've done for me what I could never do by myself and you humble yourself and you embrace Christ by faith, okay? And he says the same way you did that, you also walk that way. So here's the way I'm gonna say it. The same gospel that saved you is the same gospel that changes you. And you and I have got to go drink from that well all the time. Otherwise, we're going back to this. So here's, here's the close. When it comes to defeats, your enemy starts with what you did and tears down who you are. You're a failure. You're damaged goods. There's no hope. You were unwanted. You were unlovable. What does the Holy Spirit start with? Now, the Holy Spirit does deal with your sin. This is not some kind of cheap grace message. The Holy Spirit does deal with your sin, but starts with what Jesus has done on the cross declare, and what he declares you to be, and then he begins to help you rebuild what you did. Now, he does convict you. You did this, you did this, but that's not consistent with who you are. And he brings you back up and shows you that's not who you are and helps you repair, do the repair work for the damage caused by your sin. And lastly, you're going, but man, I've heard this for so long. I've heard that voice saying, there's no hope. There's no, I've heard that for so long. How do you do it? At some point, that's what we're always talking about. You gotta go back to the gospel. At some point, you gotta let the megaphone of the gospel speak louder than all those voices of condemnation. Listen, listen to it again. You've gotta let the voice of the gospel speak louder than the voices that are saying, this is who you are. Example, you're like, who are you? And talked about this a bunch. You are not the sum total of all your likes on Facebook, all your comments on Instagram. You are not your popularity. You are not your promotion. You are not your possessions in Christ. You can say, I am not defective. I am not damaged goods. I am not dirty. I am not disgusting. I am not unwanted. I am not worthless. And I'm definitely not unlovable. I am who Christ says I am. I am forgiven. I am free. I am redeemed. I am brand new. I am blessed. I am beloved. I am complete. I am holy. I am purposed. I am invited. I am a story of a trophy of God's grace. That's who I am. I am not what somebody has done to me. I'm not what other people have said about me. You are not what the voices inside whisper about you. You are exactly no more or no less what Christ has declared over you. That's who you are. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. Bow your heads. Bow your heads for a second. Heads bowed and eyes closed. All right. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Two things. Number one, you need to be reminded. All right. If you're a Christ follower already, be reminded, be reminded I'm not my worst day. I'm not my fault. I'm not my failure. I am who Jesus says I am. So by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to repent and act like that. I'm going to act like that. Remind yourself, though, it has to go back to the gospel, what he has declared over you. If you're not a Christ follower, if you're not a Christ follower, and if 20 minutes ago, 10 minutes ago, that wasn't the time. And you're like, man, I wish I'd have done that then. Now's your time. Now's your time. Right now, you need to receive Jesus by repentance and faith. Humble yourself. 
thank God that he is a God that loves you enough to say, listen, you are estranged from me. Without Jesus, you are condemned. But Jesus did not come to condemn you. He came to save you and he loves you. He didn't just say, I love you like humans will oftentimes say. He says, I love you and then backed it up with his action as he died on a tree for you. That whole list, that whole page of sin, taking that on himself, saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. And right now, you would just let that voice of condemnation turn into the voice of the cross of Jesus right where you sit and just say, dear Jesus, I'm turning from my sin that has condemned me. And I'm embracing the cross that saves me. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to, I want to, we're going to end with a hymn that's real, real, real familiar to some of you. Hopefully it has some fresh meaning, but I ask you to do this. Whether you've been a Christian five minutes or whether you've been a Christian 50 years, if you physically can, once you get on your knees, thank God for his grace. If there's areas of defeat, say, God, would you help me to live from the identity that you have bought for me? Not living for your acceptance. I have your acceptance. I have your grace. God, help me to hear. Neither are you condemned, but go and sin no more. So go ahead and hit your knees if you would. They're going to sing an old song. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And here's what I'd invite you to do. You're on your knees, you're thanking God. When you feel like you've driven a stake down to say, you know what, this is me, this is me, this is me. When you thank God, when you've received Jesus, whatever, then just stand to your feet and start singing this song of victory, this song of identity. Father, I wanna pray just the next couple minutes. Lives would be changed, grace would be poured out, identities would be formed, and Jesus would be glorified. And we prayed in his name. On your knees, let the song be sung over you, praying back to God. Remind me of the gospel, God. I receive the gospel.